It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Daily Premier League news and views. This is Football Social Daily. Manchester United have a new interim manager. Ralph Rangnick has been confirmed as the man to take over at Old Trafford until the end of the season. After the divorce from Solskjaer, will United now enter the honeymoon period with the 63-year-old German, who is known for his intense style of play? There's Premier League action this evening too as we embark on the first fixtures of a double game week and is Newcastle United's relationship with the top flight at risk of breaking down? A huge clash on Tyneside tonight in a clichéd relegation six-pointer as Norwich are the visitors. Just how big is this game for Eddie Howe and his players? Also last night, Lionel Messi continued his long-standing relationship with the Ballon d'Or, the little magician winning it for the seventh time in his career. But we ask, did he deserve it this time amidst some strong Premier League representation? This is Football Social Daily, your daily fling for all things Premier League. Keep right up to date with the latest happenings in the English top flight by hitting subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Niall and join me as... I'm Niall, and joining me as my lawful wedded pundits today, we've got Bachelor Joel Tudor. Morning, Joel. Good morning, everyone. Morning, morning. And newly hitched off the market, Marley Anderson, fresh from his wedding day this weekend, is also with us too. Welcome back, Marley. How was it? Uh, yeah, it was decent. Yeah, not too, not too, not such a bad <laughs> decent. day. Decent. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. Uh, it was class. Yeah, proper love the day. This is. Uh, if, if you can hear this. That's happy. That's my wedding ring, which I'm currently still getting used to. It's very strange wearing it. Like I thought but... you were going to say, it's the can of Strongbow that I'm still, I'm still going. <laughs> <laughs> well, you Brilliant got a tin stuff. on your finger. <laughs> Bloody tin, solid white gold, damn it. Yes, I'll crack it off your head tomorrow when I see you. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the frying pan and into the fire for Marley Anderson. Back on the podcast on the day, of the biggest game of Newcastle United season, in my opinion, anyway. We'll hear the thoughts of Marley, who is a bona fide Toon supporter, in a little bit. But first. First of all, we need to talk about the news, the news that everyone was waiting for. Ralph Rangnick has been confirmed by Manchester United as their new interim manager. He'll take the reins from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for the next six months before moving upstairs into a consultancy role. 
He'll arrive at Old Trafford, though, subject to the approval of a working visa. Can't imagine it will take too long for that to be confirmed, but it's unlikely he'll take charge of United's game this week at Old Trafford against Arsenal. It's more likely to be the game after that in which we see Rangnick. But this is the news everyone was expecting. It's now become official. It's been met with huge positivity, Marley, both within the club and from outside. Can you understand why that might be the case? Uh, yeah, I can I can understand it. They clearly wanted to change. It, it seemed like the fan base had, had given up, basically. Um, if not before that Watford game, then especially that Watford game was the tipping point. Um I'm just happy that Ralph Rannick's finally got a bloody job because I am sick to death of him getting mentioned and uh, linked with every top job going in England and then not getting it, not getting it, and not getting anywhere near it. Really, I think he was linked with, been linked with Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool uh, in the past um, sort of four or five years, and it's one of them. He's like, does he exist? Like, if he doesn't get a job, does he ever really exist? This guy, and finally, Man, Man United have went and pulled the trigger and, and hired him. Um, and it's now about what he can do because, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I think he's he's sort of known for his pressing and his his philosophy and his, his style of play is quite unique and you know what you're going to get sort of thing. Um, and a lot of criticism has came Man United's way for for not pressing and not being a a pressing team who, who go on the front foot. Like even when they haven't got the ball, they're not that brave. Um, they don't play such a high line um, in recent sort of seasons. And it's worked for them to an extent, but you know it. It seems like the the sexy thing to do these days is play football like that. Play play risky stuff where you send your fullbacks way up the pitch, and you know they they sort of press it's very similar to what Liverpool do uh, and Manchester City in a way as well. But it'd be interesting because Man United's squad isn't set up like that. You now we've seen seen Harry Maguire struggle every time he's close to the halfway line. He's in danger of getting spun, and he's not winning a foot race against anyone. Um, so we'll see if he can if he can do it. It's a test of how good this this manager is, and um, well, well, the proof will be in the pudding, I suppose. I suppose on that point, Joel Marley mentions the intensity and the style of play. Obviously, Rangnick is known as the father of the Gegen Press, and many coaches that we see in the Premier League and across the world now have taken inspiration from him. Managers like Klopp and Tuchel, Ralph Hasenhurtl, Jesse Marsh, the current RB Leipzig manager, have all said that this guy is someone they've drawn ideas from. But in terms of him being the real deal and these methods and styles shining through, how long do you think it will take for that to happen? How long do you think it will take for that philosophy to come across on the pitch? Is there an argument to suggest we already saw a small snapshot of that against Chelsea at the weekend? Um, with this, I'm cautiously optimistic just because he's been out of management for a long, quite a while now. I think it's a good three years. Um and yeah, I know he has quite a good PR at the moment with all these videos. I must have seen that video more times than like United versus Moscow, United versus Chelsea in Moscow. Um, it's just I, I feel like with his style, when I when I look at like for example a pressing team, um, one that has really high intensity, is a style that can be implemented pretty much instantaneously. And that's not to say that it's going to be effective. But it can be done quite quick because obviously when you think back to, for example, when Guardiola first came and obviously when Klopp first came, I remember in Guardiola's first few games, you could tell exactly what he was trying to do, but he just couldn't do it because he didn't have the right quality of players. He didn't have the specialist players who, you know, you actually need for that kind of that kind of uh, style of play. I remember, you know, his defenders coming right to the the byline where the goalkeeper was trying to take the ball and play out from the back. And you can see what they're trying to do early, but obviously it's a different matter not having the correct players to do that. 
But I think with this United side, obviously, you, any team can press. I mean, it does not, it's not hard to just run and try and chase the ball, but you need to have method with it. And I think that can be implemented pretty quickly, considering the fact that we do have a good young crop of players who will be, who can do that. I mean, we saw that against Chelsea at the weekend, uh, with you know Sancho and Rash, uh, yeah, Sancho and Rashford. They basically brought our own goal on out of absolutely nothing, purely through just pressuring Jorginho on the ball when he looked a bit vulnerable at the back. Um, so I think that it's why I say cautiously optimistic is because. I'm also aware that he only has six months and it takes a good few years to really truly show what changes you make into the side and that's why I think it's just the perfect transition for the next manager because obviously if it's Pochettino we know that his sides work extremely hard um, and the stats tell you that in every single season that he was at Tottenham they were the hardest one of the hardest working sides in the Premier League um, so I think that it's just it's just a nice transition and I don't expect miracles because, you know, he's never had one of the top, top jobs in football. It's always been kind of, you know, at Hoffenheim or Leipzig. It's never been Bayern. It's never been uh, Barcelona. It's always been the kind of, you know, the teams that he's been able to build from the ground up. And obviously his work at Salzburg and his work at Leipzig, it took the best part of a decade to really get that fully flowing. So I don't expect, you know, massive miracles. But I mean... I think the new manager lift will be apparent very, very quickly. And I'll be optimistic, for example, in the Champions League, um, just because I feel like our side has just been so reliant on just moments of magic to get us out of games. You know, for example, Ronaldo's basically kept us in the competition out of nothing. So I think having a good method and a system in place can only benefit us because in the last months, it's felt like they've just been told to go out on the pitch and just try your best. And that's not good enough for a United side. I mean, after David De Gea said against Watford that we don't know how to defend, we don't know what to do. I'm pretty sure in the next two to three weeks, you'll never hear that comment again because Randnick's the kind of guy who is absolutely detail-orientated and he knows exactly what every player should be doing. And that's what the club's been missing for quite a long time. So I'm quite surprised that the coaching staff have survived under him, to be honest, because they're part of the problem from Solskjaer's era. I think it's an interesting discussion to be had in general, kind of a, a, a taking a few ingredients from what each of you have said. Paul Merson is someone on Sky Sports who often gets a lot of stick for his views. And he's been absolutely shot down on Twitter by suggesting why has Rangnick never been given one of the bigger jobs but Joel you've just mentioned that as well that's not to denigrate the work he did at Leipzig, Schalke, Hoffenheim there is absolutely no way that any of us is suggesting that he doesn't deserve the job because of the previous clubs he's managed but then going off of what you said Marley about he's always linked with the top jobs but he never gets them Manchester United say that Rangnick was their number one choice for interim boss what do you make of that? And what do you make of, of all the discussion around is he capable of doing the job because he's never managed a club on the scale of Manchester United? Do you think that's a, a fair criticism to level at him? Or do you think it's just something that people are trying to use to to maybe question his ability? Um, it's it's probably a bit of both. I mean, people in, you know, English people are very sort of, well, he's never done it here. Um, so what's he ever done kind of thing they're a bit sort of ignorant to, to things and as you say as, as Joel said you know he's, he's built clubs from very low expectations to very attractive uh, sides before obviously it's a very different thing at Man United because you're not going to get that time and you're not going to get that uh, sort of 
like people aren't going to look at it and go, well, let's see what he can do. Let's give him a couple of years and what have you. So it is completely different. However, one thing which I think Rangnick does, and I can't think of another manager who who does this at all in the world, is he bridges the um, the role of manager and sort of sporting director style role, like or. Uh, what do you call it? You know the, the head of football. What what do they call it now? Um, well, the one technical director or whatever it's called. Yeah, you know that that role is very like boardroom only, and obviously head coach is very training ground, pick the team orientated. Because he was sporting director at Locomotive Moscow. That yeah. was that was his most recent job, which United had to obviously get him out of that to bring him to the club. Yeah, exactly. So. I I can't think of many managers who who do both those roles who get linked with with both those like vacancies at clubs. Um so I think the 6 month thing I think it's it it fits what 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 Man United are trying to do perfectly because they want someone for 6 months because they know that people will be uh, available in the summer. Um uh, maybe Pochettino, maybe Ten Hag, maybe whoever else, maybe Zidane might fancy it, I don't know, whoever whoever it may be. Um, but they also don't want to lose Rangnick because they they know he can move upstairs in a heartbeat and just and have an overview of the, of how the club goes forward in the next two years after that. So I think they've they've been clever with it. Um, Do you I, think that consultancy role is just as important as the hands-on coaching? Because we know it'll only be six months until the end of the season, but it's a further two years moving upstairs. And I think that for me that was the sweetener for the deal because I think United offered him just the interim job. And he said no, because he wanted something more long term. And then they came back with the two year consultancy thing on top of the six months coaching. And he said yes to that. So do you think that that will be just as important as the actual on the training ground, putting all the pieces in place before moving upstairs? Do you think that actual move to the boardroom level, so to speak, is going to be just as important? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, I think that role at Man United right now, the the upstairs role is, is more important than the manager's job, because I think a lot of managers could get you know a good a good result out of man united they've got the squad they've got enough players there's no real other than defensive midfield there's no really gaping holes in that team where you go they're not good enough there their attack is you know the the options they've got in attack are, are, are mad um they've got two of the best goalkeepers in the country really on the day De Gea's back to somewhere near his best uh, dean henderson lost that race but also still better than most number 2s in the premier league um, you know they've got they've got defenders just signed Varane. Yes, you know, you know, Lindelof's not great, but I still think a good manager could get something out of him. So, I think where Man United have fell apart in the last few years is the fact they've had an accountant making the making the decisions upstairs. And Edward would, you know, he's trying his best, but he doesn't know football. He doesn't know football well enough. Uh, Ralph Rangnick couldn't open an Excel spreadsheet, but does know the best young players in <laughs> Russia and Germany and stuff like that, and and how to get the best out of them. Or you would hope so, anyway. Um, mm. But we'll we'll see about that. But definitely the upstairs role in six months' time was the sweetener for him, hundred percent, because that's what type of what type of role he's used to and what what type of role he thrives in. I've got two more questions before we move on, and I'll direct both of them at you, Joel. Seeing as you're the Manchester United fan here, the first is that Rangnick says his immediate aim is to help the players fulfil their potential. That's a direct quote from him in the press release after his appointment. Fulfil their potential. Firstly, is that something you think was missing under Solskjaer? This 
ability to squeeze as much juice as possible out of the talent that Manchester United inevitably have. And second of all, what represents success for Rangnick? We talk about this two-year consultancy role, but that's in the future. The immediate is the now and making Manchester United better on the pitch. What do you think Rangnick can achieve or should be aiming to achieve? What are the expectations between now and the end of the season for him from Manchester United fans? Yeah, I think with this United side, and as we've seen throughout football, the only way a player can truly realise his potential is if obviously one, they work hard, which is a given. But the main point is that they get coached very, very well. Um, As you see under Guardiola, some of those players without him wouldn't be at the level that they're at now. Same with some of the players um, under Pochettino when Spurs were going for the title and they got the Champions League final. They went levels up because of one thing and that's the coaching. And with Solskjaer, he wasn't getting enough out of the players. I mean, to be fair, I would give him credit for, for example, Mason Greenwood's rise. I think he used him really well in the side um, and integrated him really well. But apart from him, I don't think I can name too many players who've really grown massively under him. And that's quite a big concern because we've got a lot of young, talented players in there. You know, Rashford, um, Greenwood, obviously, to be fair, Shaw's had his his best season under Solskjaer. But he's always, Shaw's been a player who's kind of hit a peak and then hit a trough and then hit a peak again. But he's been been under his his best football. But this is what I mean. The reason why he's gone, uh, Oli, is because he hit his ceiling. And when a manager hits his ceiling, how on earth are you meant to get more out of your players? And I think with someone like Rannick, who we know is very, very, you know, meticulous, he's very detailed, data-driven type coach, which is, it seems to be the complete opposite to how Ollie was, who was a bit more motivational, a bit more philosophical, like, you know, wear your heart on your sleeve type stuff. And I think the players, especially in this day and age, I think you need a manager like that, who's very, you can analyze your performance and see exactly where you need to improve. Um because a lot of our players, especially in the final third under Solskjaer, they just look clueless. And I go back to David De Gea's comments because I think they were really understated just how much, how bad that of a reflection it was on Solskjaer. The fact that the players just didn't know what system they were using, what was going on. And when the new manager comes in, and as we know, you know, Rangnick's oversaw some very, very, very good young players in Europe you know, like Upamecano, Sadio Mane, and they've all gone on to become great players. And at the start of the career, I'm sure that his guidance and his methodologies at the start have really helped them, you know, become some of the players that they are today. Um, And I think that since we have such a young squad and so many up-and-coming young players coming through, um, it is vital that we have a manager like this at this stage, and especially going forward after him, um, for example, Pochettino or Tenag, they're both renowned for nurturing young talent. Solskjaer wasn't. He was still a very relatively pretty unproven manager. We weren't really meant to be carrying on with him after he actually got hired um, following those 10 games. So it's it's the right time to have a manager in who truly understands what it takes to get the best out of players. And he's, it's tried and proven, which is what United should have always gone for. I think it was a massive risk at the start. Um, and as to what you said, what kind of constitutes a success? I mean, considering the state we're in right now, top four has to be the kind of the aim, which is quite bad to say. And it annoys me because we have the squad capable of going for the title, in my opinion. Um, but I feel as though with how good Chelsea, 
City and Liverpool are, they're not going to drop many points this year. And I feel like, what I think, what is it now, a 12-point gap between us and Chelsea, I still feel like it's way too much. Um, and I think you live in dream world if you think Rang is going to kind of manoeuvre things that much that we're going to be on off front for, on on um, or firing for the title. It's not going to happen. Um, so I think realistically, top four is going to be the aim, which is still a very, very competitive place to come because there's probably six teams, I would say, who have a realistic chance of trying to break into it. Um, and I think in terms of Europe, you know what, like the sky's the limit with that competition. We've seen how bad teams can really just kind of try the luck in that competition, especially Chelsea, um, both times. So yeah, the Champions League is a very hit or miss. You have to have all the cards fall into your place. Um, and obviously Randnick got to the semi-finals with Schalke when we played them uh, in 2010, uh, 2009, sorry, and yeah, he's, we, we absolutely battered them. But I mean, to get Schalke to a Champions League semi-final is a pretty decent achievement. Um, so, you know, he's gone far. Similar with Ten Hag, who got to the semi-finals too. And I would just kind of let him go with the flow with that competition. I mean, the world's your oyster with it. But I don't... This is what I mean. A lot of Man United fans are getting their head in the clouds thinking he's going to absolutely dominate. And you have to manage expectation, I think, um, and just be cautiously, cautiously optimistic because this squad is still damaged from the last three months and it's going to take a little bit of time. But um, top four for me is probably success this year. Top four says Joel. Manchester United currently in eighth position in the Premier League on 18 points. They are five points off of those top four spots, those Champions League positions. And they take on Arsenal, who are also on 23 points, level with fourth-placed West Ham. They can claw back some ground on those Champions League positions if they can beat the Gunners. That game, though, doesn't take place until Thursday. There are two Premier League games which are happening tonight. In the first of a double game week, huge, huge week this for Newcastle United. We'll talk about their game against Norwich City after this here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, the daily Premier League podcast from Sports Social. If you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss another episode again. Brand new shows every single day of the top flight season. We'll have all of the games previewed and reviewed for you in this hectic period of fixtures, including over Christmas as well, where there's plenty going on in the top flight. But our focus for now is on this evening's action. There are two games, Newcastle versus Norwich and Leeds versus Crystal Palace. For me, the game at St. James's Park of huge magnitude tonight, not just for Norwich City, but more so for me, for Newcastle United. It's been a really turbulent year or so, Marley, for you as a Newcastle United fan. The optimism on Tyneside, it seems from the outside looking in, is at an all-time high, particularly in terms of the vibe around the club after the departure of Mike Ashley and the introduction of the Saudi Arabians as the club's new owners. Steve Bruce was dismissed, Eddie Howe was brought in, but the club are still bottom of the Premier League table. They haven't won a game yet this season. 13 games in and they are adrift at the bottom of the table at the moment, six points from safety. So Norwich City come to town having sacked their manager, Daniel Farker. Dean Smith's been installed. They've won two and drawn one of their last three. But from a Newcastle perspective, just how big is this game and this week for the club? Oh, this is it's huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, 
we absolutely have to take six points from our next two games. Uh, we've got Norwich and then we've got Burnley after that, both at home. Uh, we should have beat Brentford. Um, we didn't really expect to beat Arsenal the way they're playing at the minute. But uh, yeah, we should have beat Brentford a couple of uh, weeks ago. Carl Darlow cost us big time in that game, to be fair. Um, and then Norwich tonight, you know, if if the if Norwich beat us, we're, we're six points behind them, I think it is. Um, so you, you can't ask for a, a better game. Eddie Howe's first game uh, at the St. James's Park touchline because he had COVID for the, um, the Brentford uh, draw. Um, and yeah, it it is it's it's absolutely massive. I think there's still this sort of uh, sort of attitude around sort of the Premier League right now that Newcastle will be all right because they're going to spend loads of money in January, and I'm I'm just not feeling the same way. I'm I'm starting to really worry about how much work we've got to do because I don't think twenty far twenty four twenty five games left. It's not that much because. We've you know we haven't won any of our first thirteen, so are we going to win thirteen of our next twenty five? It's you know it's not it's not cut and dry. This is a seriously dangerous position to be in, and the start we made under Steve Bruce was is is what's really hindered us because we had a lot of winnable games and we didn't win any of them uh, in that first the first ten games. I think we had six or seven that were that were easily winnable. Didn't have many of the the you know the huge superpowers that. are that you don't expect to beat, um, and our December's looking horrendous because that's when we do play those those big boys. We play Liverpool, Man City, um, Chelsea are in there as well, and and you know that's the work Eddie Howe's got to do now. That's the the hand he's been dealt, um, and I'm starting to think is uh, is it is it a little bit too much because we have we have improved hundred percent. We've improved since he's come in, but we still look weak at the back, and how many games are we going to score one more than them or two more than them, you know what I mean? So it's a very big task um, and the work needs to start tonight. Yeah, 100%. And actually, Eddie Howe, since he's come in, you mentioned Steve Bruce and the start that the club made under him at the beginning of this season. Eddie Howe's come in, missed the first game, as you say, due to a positive COVID test. He's negative now. He was on the touchline for the Arsenal game, but this will be his first game in the dugout at St. James's Park. But do you think that counts for a, for a great deal? Have you seen improvement under Eddie Howe first off and second off? Do you think him being there in person on the touchline at St. James's will will add much to it or not? Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely to both to both uh, questions you asked there. Um, the improvement has been has been obvious to see. I think um, the biggest uh, example of that is the, the Brentford game. We had fifty three percent possession, and I think. I'm right in saying that's the first time we've dominated. We've had more possession than anybody um, in the league this season. We've never we've never had more than fifty percent. And when when Bruce was in charge, it was quite often in the twenties and the in the low thirties, but like below thirty five percent. And it's, yeah, some games you know uh, you're not going to see the ball for long periods of time, but we know Brentford can play, and we know Brentford like to have the ball themselves. So to beat them in the in the possession. Um, stats was was uh, a, a massive highlight of what Eddie Howe is trying to do. He's trying to play with the ball, trying to impose what we can do on the opposition. Um, and you know, we had I think we had twice as many shots, twice as many shots on target, um, and everything like that. So there was immediately something to uh, 
to cling on to there. And obviously, as I mentioned, if if Darlow had done his job properly, would have won that game. Um, but he he ended up spooning uh, Ivan Tony's relatively tame shot into the net. Um, and and that's just the way it goes. But it's that type of luck that needs to start changing because we are going to need a little bit of luck to get out of this because. Um, it's a really tough situation to be. We need to start nicking points here and there and defending better and being hard to score against. Uh, and hopefully it all happens tonight. Yeah, massive game. Not just for Newcastle, but also for Norwich City, Joel, because we were all writing them off at the start of the season. Daniel Farker was on the worst losing streak in Premier League history in terms of a managerial standpoint. He did win against Brentford before the international break in his final game as Norwich manager, but he was given his marching orders And many people were surprised at that, that the club sacked him after a win. But that's been quickly forgotten because Dean Smith's come into Norwich City after his dismissal as Aston Villa manager. And they look much sprightlier for me under him. Is that that new manager bounce that we talk about? Or are they genuinely a better side now under Smith after just two games? What's the difference? Is it the new manager bounce or is it something Smith's done, do you think? Um Honestly, out of the he's been in charge for three games now, hasn't he? <clears throat> Where he's got two wins and a draw. I think honestly, I was more impressed with the draw against Wolves, just because we've seen how solid Wolves have been this season. Um, they went undefeated in like I think six or seven games. Uh, just recently got beat by West. Oh no, they beat West Ham. Yeah, so they've been in, in an amazing run of form. And let's not forget, before Far got that win and he got sacked, they they lost twenty Premier League games before that, and. Considering he's undefeated now in three, I mean, we, I, I myself, I've written them off completely. Um, just before they got that first win of the season, they were looked absolutely terrible. They, they were literally get. I mean, they got beat by Chelsea seven nil just before they got that win. They looked absolutely done and dusted. So I think, for me, I think Dean Smith has got a massive. He's got a massive point to prove after that Villa dismissal. I think he's really wanting to prove to everyone because I th- I think personally it was a little bit harsh to sack him from Villa at that point he was at just because of how many massive injuries and team selection issues he had but now I think he's just I think it it was like the relief that the Norwich seems kind of feeling after Farks left because I think it just went too far after you've lost that many games under a manager I think they just completely yeah. lose belief and I don't know if you the can ever... The was set, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And you need to cut it by the roots. You can't keep trimming the leaves. And I think they, the the whole team had just came to a kind of re- resound decision that it wasn't going their way. And they needed a new manager to come in and actually make them believe again. And it's clear to see. I mean, they clearly have the quality. If, you know, the first game, they won away to Brentford. I mean, I don't know the last time they actually won an away Premier League game. Um, and obviously they beat Southampton then obviously that nil-nil draw against Wolves and what's most impressive to me is they've only conceded two in three considering how much they've been leaking goals uh, this season in the Premier League I mean I think they conceded what 27 goals which is the second highest in the league this season and now they've conceded two in the last three and that just shows they have the quality there but they just needed that separation from Fark because it was going absolutely nowhere and I totally even when they you know when they get the uh, sacking after he won that game I was surprised everyone was so shocked at that because the damage was already done it was done way before that and I think they saw that probably I think two weeks ago they made that decision regardless of what the results did I think that that result was a bit of a flash in the pan type result 
Um, and I don't think the players believed it. I think because both sides played against each other in the championship last season, it was one of the few teams Norwich could come up against and feel like yeah, they true. were able to give them a good game. I think where there's plenty of scars from the last time they were in the Premier League under the same manager, many of the same players. So, you know, they did look a shell of the side that won the championship last season, but Daniel Fark has gone, Dean Smith's come in and Norwich have looked better. Just finally on Newcastle then, because I think that the emphasis should be on your team here, Marley. Everyone is suggesting Newcastle are heading towards the January window where they can make some reinforcements and give themselves a boost. But there are still seven games, including tonight's game, between now and the new year. And there are the likes of City, United, Liverpool and Leicester all to come between now and the end of December. It feels like it doesn't matter who you're linked with right now. The focus has to be in the next two games, in the next five days, because it could be a case of too little, too late. Yeah, definitely. Um, all I want for Christmas this year is just uh, three points, <laughs> a win. Uh, I was honestly hoping that on Saturday, my team would win a game and give me the best wedding present ever. And I looked at the score halfway through, like just before I started my speech, and it was like, you lost 2-0. I was like, ah, there we go, never mind. But yeah, it needs to start, it needs to start now. Um, it's if, if not tonight, I will... I'd be tempted to to chuck money on Newcastle going down because it needs to start now. As you, as we've been saying, you know we've got Norwich and Burnley. Uh, then our next run of three is Leicester, Liverpool, Man City, and then Man United. After that, so if you look at that, takes us up to the thirtieth of December. And if you've got no wins by then, you are. I mean, Harry Houdini would have a job getting out of that. Never mind Eddie Howe. So. <laughs> Yeah, it needs to it needs to start now. Well, eyes of Newcastle will be on the game tonight against Norwich, but there'll also be perhaps a little bit of a side eye on Leeds against Crystal Palace, considering where Leeds are in the Premier League table. This one kicks off at eight fifteen at Ellen Road, and Leeds absolutely desperate for a win. They can't be leapfrogged tonight, but Norwich can go level on points with them if they beat Newcastle in that aforementioned game. It's a huge week for Leeds with with Palace and Brentford before they've got games with Chelsea, City, Arsenal and Liverpool all consecutively up till Boxing Day. So much like Newcastle with that tough run through December, so have Leeds United. They've got to win tonight, Joel, haven't they, to really put themselves at ease of getting dragged into that relegation battle if they're not already in it. What's your take? Yeah, it's a massive game for Leeds. I'm quite surprised with the downfall in that side this year. I don't know if it's because, you know, Bamford's out and Calvin Phillips has been in and out of the side, but... They look an absolute shell of what they did last year. I mean, they were getting praise for getting battered by United 6-1 at uh, Old Trafford just because they were pressing and showing energy and that kind of thing. And now I'm not seeing anything at all. Um, I think for Leeds, and it's the same issue with Newcastle, I feel like both of them just need a win. They need that catalyst to kind of kick on a little bit. But the only issue they have is that they're not taking their chances in the games that are winnable. When they come up again, because I know Leeds have got, what, Chelsea, City, United, they basically got all of the top six nearly in the next six games. And they could end up getting leapfrogged by Norwich. I would not be surprised in the next two games, three games, and they could find themselves in a real bad mess. And I never would have thought I would be saying that after last season. I mean, I think this time last season, I was uh, looking yesterday before my preview, um, that Leeds were 13th with 17 points this time last year at the same stage of the season. And now they find themselves 17th with 12 points. So it's not a massive difference, but it also is a massive difference objectively if you watch them play. Um, 
and I think yeah tonight it seems like that stage of the season where everything's kind of a must win isn't it you know Leeds against Crystal Palace is a winnable game then they've got Brentford the next two are vital to kind of ease the pressure I don't think it's a case of winning to kind of stay up it's more so a case of keeping the heads above water because obviously you've got Chelsea, City, Arsenal, Liverpool then Villa in the next games after that and if they don't get a result in those next two games that could be seven games that they end up throwing in succession um so I think it's it is vital that these games the winnable ones are the ones that they really treat with like the utmost certainty because you know it's easy to overlook the fact that you know it's two games and they've got five games it's the big gate the big guns in the league but you could find yourself seven games in again suddenly it's gone and you got three points from seven games and suddenly you're in a real battle then when it comes to January um, so in terms of must win, yeah, I've, I've always been a believer at this stage of the season that it's never done and dusted just because we've seen it many, many times before in the in the history of the Premier League where, you know, 10 games to go, six games to go, miracles do happen and players suddenly kind of start realising the mess that they're actually in. Um, and sometimes they get like a new manager bounce if, if clubs want to kind of stick or twist. But it's, it's a dire situation at Leeds at the moment. Um, and I'm surprised because they've got such quality in there. Like I mean, Rafinha has been real standout player for them, and it's not a case of it's a case of it is a case of scoring. I mean, I'm just looking at their results, and it's all just one nils, nil nils. Then yeah. they, they can't score. But Patrick Bamford's been out for ages, yeah, which is probably part of the reason of that. They have had injuries, and actually, Patrick Bamford played 90 minutes for Leeds under 23s last night, so it's unlikely that he'll be involved against Crystal Palace this evening at Ellen Road. But you never know. Stranger things have happened. Luke Ayling also played in that game. So they have had their injuries. Calvin Phillips was missing for a period as well. But but maybe you're right. Maybe they've just found this season slightly tougher. The return of fans to stadiums and the injuries. And, you know, it's a tough league, the Premier League. And we always said that Leeds were a side that were greater than the sum of their parts. Individually, in terms of quality, there aren't that many squads that are worse off than Leeds, if that makes sense. So I think that certainly it was always going to be tough this time around. As for Crystal Palace, you can almost level the opposite of them. Many people tipping them to go down this season. But Patrick Vieira has come in and done a really, really good job so far. They've drawn more games than any other side in the Premier League, though, Marley. Seven times they've tied a game. That surely has to swing one way or another for them soon. They can't keep drawing every match. Well, they'll give it the best shot by the looks of it. <laughs> um, yeah, they. it's... I always feel like with teams that that draw a lot of games, the first one that you don't draw is is just huge, because then you can say like if you draw for example five in a row, and then you lose the sixth, it's six games without a win, but if you win the sixth game, it's six games unbeaten. So it puts a massive spin on on where you where you sort of perceive to be, um, but seven draws and they're eleventh in the league, so it it's sort of like leveled out perfectly you'd expect the team with who's drawn the most games to be around mid-table and that's exactly where they are um but one thing's for sure is that, that they've been much much improved since uh, Patrick Vieira came in there there's a lot more uh, dynamic sort of attack into their to their play they've got some exciting players I think last year they had the most boring squad in the world um <laughs> Nobody, nobody tunes in to watch James McCarthy, James McCarthy, Luka, Luka Milovievich and Jeffrey Schlupp try and create chances for Christian Benteke. They just don't. Um, but now, you know, Elise, Eze, Zaha, Edouard, 
Gallagher's been amazing. Um, Gay's tripped, uh, Gay's chipped in with a couple of goals recently as well from centre back. Um, and there's a lot of lot of stuff to be um, excited about for Crystal Palace fans, and and that's all. You know, I think back to last season when we talked about Palace, it was just just stale. They just needed something. They needed some sort of personality to come in and and to ignite them a bit, and that's what Vieira's done. Um, and even though they've only won three games this season. The the draws have been like late goals and they've been close to wins and you know if they'd had if they just happened to not concede late in in two of those games they'd be seventh in the league right now um so you know that that shows you that they're a decent team yeah I totally agree big game tonight for Leeds United Crystal Palace never easy particularly in what they've shown this season so far. 8.15pm kickoff between those two at Ellen Road. Right, that's it for tonight's Premier League fixtures. There are more throughout the rest of the week. Wednesday and Thursday, there are games. We'll look ahead to those on tomorrow's podcast and the day after, of course. And if you hit subscribe on Football Social Daily, wherever you listen to your podcasts, that way you won't miss one. But after this break, we're going to talk about the Ballon d'Or because the awards ceremony was last night. Lionel Messi won the award for the seventh time in his career, but did he deserve it? We'll ask that question next after this on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. I'm Niall. Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson alongside me. And we're going to talk about the Ballon d'Or now. The awards ceremony was last night. Lionel Messi was voted as the winner of the award, which translates from French to golden ball. It's effectively a marker of who's the best player in the world. Or at least it used to be. There are some question marks after last night's decision to hand Messi the seventh award of his career as to whether it's just a glorified popularity contest. So who would have been your pick, Marley? We'll come to you first for the winner of the award last night. Did Messi deserve it? Would he have been your choice to win a seventh award of his career? No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, I I still think he had a a decent year, but when... (laughs) The thing with Messi is when you've been at such a level, um, you know, I think back to, I think it was, was it the 2012 or 13 season where he scored 91 goals in a calendar year or something like that. Um, when you come down from that level, even though you're at still a very high level, I just think it's hard to to ignore other players because it's almost like he's made that, that sort of... Uh, level for himself of like yeah I'm I mean I am clearly the most talented player in the world but he hasn't had the best season um and it's hard to look past Robin Robert Lewandowski for that season because he's he's just I think he's got 48 goals in 40 games um you know he's he's, he's the most talented player um or has been for the last year so I'd be fuming if I wasn't him um why do you think he didn't win it? Because by all accounts, Lionel Messi has allegedly come out and said that he feels sorry for Lewandowski and that actually he thinks that Lewandowski deserves to have won the award last night, which obviously yeah. isn't going to make Robert Lewandowski feel any better uh, about it. But but what do you think the reasons are? I thought Ali McCoy said something interesting on national radio this morning about French journalists and Spanish journalists aren't going to vote for Lewandowski. South American journalists aren't going to vote for Lewandowski because, of course... The Ballon d'Or is chosen by a panel of 180 different journalists around the world. So do you think that that's part of the reason? Maybe. I just think Messi's a bigger a bigger brand. He's a bigger uh, name. He's, more, he's a sexier name, isn't he, than, than Lewandowski. Um, I think 
Lewandowski's been at such a high level, but it's always it's always consistent. Like he's he always gets thirty goals a season, you know. Whereas Messi is like, sometimes the peaks are higher, and there's more like he scores more incredible goals and and does does uh, like more eye catching things than Lewandowski. Whereas you know you know as a defender, like if that ball comes into the penalty area. Robert Lewandowski will finish it, whether it's right foot, left foot, head, or whatever. Um, so it's like a, it's they're just they're both amazing, obviously, but they're both just different. I think Messi's uh, just gl- a bit gl- glitzier, if that's uh, I can't even say that word. You yeah. know, a bit a bit but that, shinier. But that kind of lends its it lends itself to that argument that I just mentioned about it being a glorified popularity contest. Because well, if we're talking about who was the best player yeah. over the last twelve months, it's Robert Lewandowski without question, and I don't think Messi as good as he is and will be regarded as one of the best, if not the best to ever do it. I think that he couldn't hold a candle to Lewandowski last year. And I think it was summed up really nicely in this tweet from football writer, Stefan Biankowski, who said, the sad fact is that had any player scored 41 goals in 29 league games in La Liga or the Premier League, there wouldn't have even been a debate over who deserved the Ballon d'Or. Lewandowski may not have won the prize, but this was in truth a massive defeat for the Bundesliga. What do you make of that? Yeah, it sounds sounds about right. Like the the Bundesliga's had a lot of stick over the years. Um, with you know, it's just a one one team race and it, and it does create a rod for its own back when Bayern go out and buy everybody's best players every year and that's kind of what they did in 2012 or 2013 when they got Lewandowski because he was the best striker in Germany um, and they went out and got him so they might do it again with Erling Haaland in a couple of years you never know um, but yeah that is that is one thing that Bundesliga players will have to uh, to have to know. Um, you've seen it with Hyung Min Son leaving leaving Leverkusen, becoming one of the best wingers in the world, and getting recognised for his talents a bit more by coming to the Premier League. Um, and you see it, you see it with many many players over the ta- over the years. Uh, and you probably are, if you're Lewandowski, you probably have suffered for that by missing out on individual uh, individual awards. Yeah, I think Lewandowski can feel aggrieved that he didn't win it. Would he have been your pick as well, Joel? Oh, 100%. The the Ballon d'Or now is just a PR machine. It's just whatever player's got the biggest PR and the biggest brand, like Marley said, wins it. I mean, when you look at Lewandowski's stats, it's not even just for 2020 when he won the Champions League, even just 2021 itself. He got 64 goals in a calendar year, which is like, I think, 10 more than the next highest uh, 20 more sorry than the next highest like he's been out of this world in in uh, this for the last two years straight i think the only reason why messi is even in contention and obviously 41 goals in a calendar year is always going to be like an amazing amazing achievement but the only reason he's even in contention and won it was because he won a copper america and that's the only reason and let's not and let's not forget in that tournament he wasn't he wasn't incredible he didn't light the stage up massively um, but obviously Ballon d'Or results always kind of favour those players who've had an amazing international tournament for two months out of the entire 12-month period that they actually voted for, which in itself is quite strange as well. Um, but exactly like you said, Niall, the fact that 100 journalists from all these different countries vote, of course, there's way more Hispanic journalists from South America um, and way more journalists that probably know of Messi more than Lewandowski, and they're always going to vote for him. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's turned into a popularity contest now, truly. I mean, I was looking at the the list 
of the top 30 Ballon d'Or players and Gerard Moreno got a vote for to win it. I mean, if that tells you everything you need to know, he's probably his best mate in the Spanish media has voted for him. It's ridiculous. How can you vote for <laughs> someone like that to win a Ballon d'Or? It, it makes no sense to me. Well, let's talk about Premier League representation in the Ballon d'Or Awards last night. Jorginho, the Chelsea midfielder who plays for Italy, Brazilian-born, finished third in the standings behind Lewandowski and the eventual winner, Messi. He was the highest ranked of any Premier League player. I think Ronaldo was sixth. I think Phil Foden was 25th and I think Salah was in the top 10 somewhere as well. In terms of Jorginho Marley being the highest rated Premier League player, so to speak, do you think that was warranted? Because, of course, he won the Euros with Italy and he won the Champions League with Chelsea. Uh, no, uh, I don't think it was It was that warranted. <laughs> um, yes, it's a thing again, isn't it? You know, is it is it trophies, you know, that make you high up the pitch? Because nobody had a better year than Jorginho. He won the Champions League and he won the Euros. So if mm, you're going no on... No one else did that. Yeah, exactly. Right. If you're mm. going on trophies, then he then he wins it. You know, nobody beat that. Forget your Copa America. You know, he won the Champions League and his version of the Copa America. So I don't think it should be like that. And that's why I don't think he should be in there because talent-wise, talent he's not the third best player in the world. He's very, very good. Don't get me wrong, but... If Jorginho is the third best player in the world, then over the years, Sergio Busquets has been screwed out of about 10 because he's been the best defensive midfielder of the modern generation for a good decade. You know, playing alongside Xavi and Iniesta, yes, is is amazing and all the rest of it. But his reading of the game and, and passing is exactly what Jorginho does now, but arguably better. Um, well, I'd, I'd say not arguably if you ask me, but, you know, way better, but... It's it's just like the whole thing. It doesn't make sense. Like they don't say it's about trophies. They say it's it's the best player, and they've give it to the a player who wasn't the best player in the world this year, and then they've give it to the, they've give third place to a player who just happened to win the most in in that year as well. So it's all very confusing. It doesn't really. There's no clear guidelines because if you said it's about the players who wins the most then it's Jorginho. If you say it's about who had the best year, it's Lewandowski. And neither of those answers are messy, but it's it's PR, isn't it? Yeah, and actually, I can't think the last time a Premier League player won the Ballon d'Or. And we always talk about how good the league is in our country. But I think in terms of all-round quality, the Premier League's the best. But individual quality, it's, uh, it's hard to look past some of the players of the likes of Messi and Lewandowski and even Ronaldo when he was playing his trade overseas. I think it was Ronaldo, wasn't it? Cristiano and at Man U in 2008 or something like that. But yeah, it, it, it must Long have time. been. I mean, we've seen players like, like De Bruyne light the stage up and Salah's been phenomenal as well. Lots of people suggesting that they thought he should have won it. Yeah. So I wanted to finish off today's podcast by asking, I'll go for you first, Joel. If a Ballon d'Or for the first four months of this season, from August till now, if we were awarding a Ballon d'Or tomorrow, just voted for by yourself, me and Marley, who would your vote be going to? It kills me to say this. I don't know if I can say it. <laughs> I, I was going to say, say this, this is going to be painful. <laughs> um, yeah, it would have to go to Salah, wouldn't it? I mean, if you look in all of world football right now, I don't think there's been a player who's impacted games so far this season more than he has. I don't know if he has the most goals in Europe at the moment. Maybe it is Lewandowski, but I wouldn't give it to Lewandowski right now just because um, Bundesliga goals over Premier League goals, I will never, ever rate higher. Um, 
but purely just because Salah's been doing it in Europe as well. Um, and I really don't think there's a player right now who's in better form than he is, sadly enough. Um, so yeah, I'd probably go with Salah. That would be my pick. Reluctantly, I'm biting my tongue as I say it. <laughs> okay, then Marley, what about you? And I'm vetoing any vote for Joe Linton. <laughs> or uh, Josh King. Oh, definitely not Josh King, Jesus. He's, he's making a mug out of me. He keeps bloody scoring. Uh, he must listen to this podcast, you know. Josh, after that, after I said that five-a-side comment, he's been going crazy geez. with the goals. Josh, if you're listening, I still think you're crap, mate, but never mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, nah, it, it has to be Salah, doesn't it? There, there's no other There's no other person out yeah. there. Um, it's not even close. He's, he's streets ahead. Bernardo Silva's having an amazing season as well at, at Manchester yeah, City. Yeah, I but agree. Salah, for, for his... His impact and his, um, you know, his, his goals and the 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 stats that back it up, you know, they are they. He's just by far the best uh, in the world right now. And if he carries on to the end of the season, then there's no way he shouldn't win the Ballon d'Or next year because no one's really close to him in the world right now. Yeah, I think I'd have to make it a hat trick for Mo Salah, particularly if we were just doing a Premier League award for the Ballon d'Or. It would have to be him. I think Karim Benzema's had a pretty good year as well someone who maybe was overlooked but not as good a year yeah, well, as Robert on, Lewandowski on the pitch, yeah. what's that on the pitch yeah yeah <laughs> on the absolutely, pitch yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are focusing on action on the pitch rather than off the pitch otherwise you could have some rather <laughs> suspicious votes but that's it Mo Salah takes our vote for the Ballon d'Or if it was awarded tomorrow what do you think get in touch with us on social media at the sports social on Twitter you can find us on Instagram sports social official and we're also on Facebook if you just type into the search bar sports social you can find us there that's it for today's football social daily thank you very much joel i'll leave you to finish that can of strongbow as well marley and we'll see you again tomorrow as we look back at tonight's premier league fixtures as well as looking ahead to tomorrow's catch you then football social daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power. Loyalty and luck I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you wanna get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday I will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary VGW group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply